Hello, everybody, and welcome to another E5 podcast. I am one of your hosts today. My name is Paul Meenan, and thank you for tuning in. With me today, as ever, my loyal tag team partner. Hello, it's David Watts here, a.k.a. Sparky Ninja. The ninja himself. David, we have got a extra, extra special guest today, so I'm going to introduce him. Um, This is uh, everybody in podcast land. Meet our new neighbour, Mr. Gary Alder. Good evening. Hello, Gary. Thank you very much for honouring us and gracing us with your presence and time tonight. Yeah, no, Um, thank you very much. Awesome. Brilliant. Right. So these podcasts, as you know, we like to get to know people. Um, So do you want to start off? We'll we'll tell everybody why you're our neighbour towards the end of the podcast. Definitely worth uh, staying tuned in for. Um, But do you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your role is, who you work for, etc.? Yeah, sure. So... Basically, I started out about 14 years ago um, as an electrical apprentice for uh, a local company uh, that were a bespoke uh, control panel manufacturer. Um, They specialized in various uh, client-specific installations, such as for pharmaceutical, chemical, food manufacturing processes. Um, They also heavily worked within the water industry. Um, so that was my bread and butter for about 10 years working th- through the company. Um, basically got some opportunities quite early on in my career, probably not long after actually qualifying and becoming approved and going straight into the project management side of things f- for them. Um, so I kind of ended up working for about six years as a project manager within the water industry as a subcontractor. Um, to the tier the tier one contractors and after a period of time the main contractors obviously began to get affiliated with us but began to build up a relationship as well as build up a reputation for myself um, within the industry Um, eventually that company unfortunately folded um, and I took the step to set up my own business Um, I basically did that for about a year working for very similar clients that, you know, kind of filled the gap in between that company folding. Um, and then it's kind of descended. I fell out of love with the industry for a little while and ended up just doing like house bashing just by myself, um, just to kind of be away from everything, all the paperwork and the noise. And then I got a phone call one day um, to see if I was interested in Thames Tideway with my water industry experience um i'd been recommended by several of the main contractors working on it and basically i said yes and it's been a couple of years now and i've been the the lead electrical engineer on on tideway west wow wow so you finished your time straight into project management um me and you i mean the listeners don't know this but me and you have met previously gary we've we've put the world to rights yeah. Um, for a day already. And um, we've got very similar backgrounds in respects of the minute you're out of your time. If you care and you're passionate, you seem to get responsibility thrown upon you. I went through engineering in the tier twos, the tier ones. For those listening who don't know what a tier one or a tier two is. Thank you. A, a tier two contractor is a subcontractor, a.k.a. the 
I don't know, the uh, NG Baileys, the, the electrical, Joe Bloggs electrical contractor, the Thomas Nagy is a tier two contractor. Um, the David Savory is a tier two contractor, to put it into context. A tier one contractor will be the likes of Balfour Beatty or Morgan Sindel or Costains or Carillion. The basically the, the civil engineers who dig holes and fill it with concrete and are really bad at pipes and wires. Um, they then what they do is they then go and find a tier two a tier two contractor and then they say, can we do it? Now, the most famous tier two contractor and the biggest in this country is T. Clark's. Um, T. Clark's are so big, they can do the role of a tier two and a tier one. So they can also do civils because they have the infrastructure, the resources, but they are a specialist m &E contractor. So tier two is the little man. Tier two is the bigger civil engineering company that sometimes messes around. The little man and then below tier two you can get tier three which is just specialist subcontractors like the panel manufacturers the thermal imaging companies the vsd companies the, the very niche. Just the, niche the contractors. niche contractors so there is a hierarchy within general contracting but when i say general i think am, am i right in saying this gary that it's more industrial commercial contracting you don't have tier one contractors in domestic installing because that would be like Balfour Beatty building your house yeah. and then employing you as a subby. That generally doesn't happen. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, it basically, like you say, the uh, the concrete pushes. Mm. Yeah, well, on fairness, it does happen on new builds. So if you think of new builds, the ho housing developers would be the tier one contractor doing the build. Mm -hmm. They would then employ the likes of the domestic installer and say, would you like a price for 10 plots? To do the wiring on ten homes. I mean, a lot of electricians who wire up new houses, you know, they don't they don't wear the same livery or work with the same vehicles as the guys building the houses. No. So clearly, there is a tier one, tier two arrangement with some of the new property builds. Yes, yeah. I think it's fair to say, oh, Gary, they're the supply chain arrangements, aren't they? That's mm. what we know as the supply chain arrangement, and it's it's very hierarchical. It's report up, get paid up, etc. There's lots of mechanic mechanisms and clauses and contractual obligations to meet and. Mm. If it's fair to say, Gary, it's quite a, it's quite a baptism by fire when you go into it, isn't it? It is, yeah. Obviously, when you start dealing with sub sub contractors, um, it oh. can get very messy. And you know, if you're if you're dealing with a specialist, sometimes you do need to speak to that specialist, even if they are two steps away from you, um, to ensure you're getting the right delivery of the contract that you wish or design even mm. um that tends to be the probably the one of the most difficult parts to actually manage so gary when you um got into you went into obviously control panel manufacturing when you actually got inherently into the water industry is was there a point where you got where, where you realized oh this is a place where i'm going to stay or i'm going to kind of go career was there anything about the water industry, industry specifically that made you think that uh no do you know what i didn't actually even realize that till i was probably on tideway mm. um it was actually quite late that i thought crap i have actually <laughs> niched on this and... is that because of just being recognized as um, a specialist maybe yeah i think so um, the the area which i live obviously uh living in windsor and thames valley um windsor, all, our, I know windsor. All, all our waters thames water um mm. and obviously they have their own standards and codes above water industry standards and codes. So I just ended up becoming very familiar with Thames Water's codes of practice. Um, and essentially it's tapping into that, that the tier one contractors didn't have yeah. available to them um, within their own staffs. Mm, that's interesting. It's my old, uh, 
Right. You said something interesting in your little introduction there, um, which I, I want to come back to. I don't know if you want to talk more about your general career, but you mentioned that you took a, a, a leave or you decided to give up on it for a period of time and you went into yeah. house bashing. Was, was there, what was the core reason for that? Um, so the, probably one of the, the key factors was payment and getting mm. payment on time. Um, I was kind of dealing with, I wasn't quite at the NEC option A sort of level of contracts, but it was 30-day payment terms and clauses and, you know, invoicing and all that sort of thing. And it got to a stage where I had several large uh, bills outstanding that mm. weren't getting paid on time. And I, I just got to a point where I thought, you know what, I've had enough. I can't wait. Was this you working as a as a solo single subcontractor? No, at that time I had a, uh, it was about six, seven guys. Oh, you had a payroll for, then? Yeah, no, I had a payroll. Um, had guys working under me. Had apprentices. Um, had carried on the the previous business and what staff I could manage mm. um, with the contracts that I could continue. Um, but it, it, yeah, like I say, cash flow became king and. Um, it was a case of okay, where my my previous boss had had, had failed, I was going to learn the lesson, and I wasn't yeah. going to continue to to fund it into debt. Yeah, no, I've I've worked with a couple of key clients. The food industry is one of the culprits, from my experience, where they have ninety day terms, and the, you know there's no move on that. And then you go, oh right, I'll work to ninety day terms. I'll adjust my other work rate for my other work, but they still pay late. Yeah, they still they still miss ninety days. They push you to one hundred and twenty days, and you know that's that's the thing that they they. I mean, this, these are food manufacturers for the largest companies, so they have those rates. But for people like me, who would you you probably consider to be a tier three, same thing, same principle. So you got a guy doing that, and he's getting messed around. So I yeah, I'm experienced with people and payment being a, a, a basically one of the reasons for kind of just canning it. The one thing I have been impressed actually, the ECA have actually done a lot of work helping smaller contractors and producing lots of guidance and materials to help uh, uh, SMEs, they call them small to medium enterprises, yeah. um, mm. getting payments and getting fairness in payments. Because when a company hangs on to that money, um, I, I, again, I'm speaking from my experience here, mm. it, is, it is purest profiteering of the worst kind in some cases. 90-day payment terms is absolutely disgraceful. It, it, all The only reason they do it is cash flow management and profiteering off of the interest that they make on holding that cash back. Yeah. It's a, it's a well-known trait in tier one contracting. I find it personally reprehensible. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, Gary, if you want to offer an informed view. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I pretty much agree. It's probably worth me just giving some background on the company that I did work for for about 10 years. Um, so basically, obviously, I worked up to the point of being um, a, a project manager, a senior project manager within the staff. Um, the two previous directors of the company decided to leave um, which ended up falling into my lap to actually step in to be the managing director of the company um, at the time I was 26 um, so wow. young. And this, yeah mm -hmm. this yeah and it was too young um, and I, I don't mind saying that and essentially this was a 40 year old business that had established clients um, the two previous directors left and it was kind of left to me to pick up uh, what contracts we had, continue going, and essentially 
see that and the 30 staff that we had to continue um there was there was quite a lot riding on it at the time and I, it was a position i didn't feel i could turn down um like me again fundamentally you're at that age there where you go right i've done my training i've done my enhanced training i've done a bit more and you're hungry to jump on opportunities and if people offer an md role and a role that you're able to you think you're able to do it a lot of people will, will jump on that and try it yeah no i think it was if it hadn't have been the situation, I wouldn't have taken it. Mm. Um, if, if it hadn't have been so many people's livelihoods riding yeah. on, on myself, because um, we had a part-time owner, um, and it, it was really myself that was the only real office management that was going to be left in the company. Um, so, you know, it was a case of you know, pull the ladders up and, and make sure this kind of works. And we, we did for a period of time to the point where we actually successfully won a couple of very large contracts um, and actually probably too big for, for what we had going on. Mm. Um, and it was with one company who I won't name, um, but they essentially put us on 90 day payment terms, but, and across two projects. And obviously when you're three months in, in the red, um, as soon as that first month doesn't come in, it's actually multiplied by two as well for two projects. It just uh, multiplied over probably three months of no payment, and it just ended up sending the company under. Yeah. Mm. It's very hard. I know people that have been given the title of director at a young age, um, not as long as young as you were thrown into that challenge. Um, and I've, I've, I've always said if you... Uh, the one guy I knew who became a director at a young age, I said to him, why are you taking this role on? And he went, well, it's the rule of director. And I went, what's the rule of director? And he says, once you've had director in your title, you seem to just, you're able to go to another director role and another director role. And I have a personal view, which I will air on this podcast. And that is, I have seen in the, I've done 24 years in industry and I have seen director go from failure to failure to failure. I have seen tier one contractor directors come in, fail, and then move on to another company to run a department, fail, two years later, move on again and again and again. And I think when I was a, a certain tier one civil contractor, I had like four directors in five years. There was no consistency. And everyone wanted to make their own mark. Well, that's the thing, look, though, isn't it? It's yeah. their time. It's their opportunity. They've got to make an impact. Yeah. And they Oh, I mean, I saw, some, I saw some horrors. I saw one director take credit for loads of projects that were delivered in his tenure and he didn't win any of them and he never went to any of the sites. But it, it stayed on his CV for 10 years after. He was the person who delivered this work. And we were like, well, no, you're not. You never delivered. You never even turned up to site. But that I find the scandalous part of directorships. But then again, I, I've never wanted to be a managing director. I've always aspired to maybe be a technical director or a director of asset management, but never necessarily an, a managing director. Um, I think I'm probably too much of a people person. To be, I don't know. I don't know. Never say never, I suppose. But I, I have. Had, sorry, gone. Yeah, sorry. No, I've been offered like some work with some companies, and they've said look, they've thrown the idea of being a director for the organisation with them. Um, and when there's a company that employs people and they ask you to work as a director, I instantly just get nervous. I would, like you say, Paul, I probably would be okay to take responsibility for the technical disciplines. Yeah. For the technical standard. Yeah. But when it comes to managing the director, <laughs> that pressure. No, not for me. I don't. Do you know what I find that the more senior a manager I've become, the more senior and mm. roles I've become, the more human you have to be. Yeah. 
So 15 years ago, I was, I was quite a militant, uh, aggressive, you know, NICQS, you know, pro senior project engineer going into when I was in project management. It was the first time when I did project management at Shepherds Bush. It was the first time I realized that I wasn't doing the work. I was enabling everyone around me. I was just that channeler, that support system, the, mm. the fulcrum, the whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. When I was doing tier one management, it was about managing expectations of those above me and enhancing the expectations and bringing on the journey with me those below me, which were my subcontractors. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I got a kick out of it because I wanted guys to do the work. And then when their job finished, they all went, well, that was different. We all got on. It was it was fun. And we got to do a, a decent job. And what I was trying to teach people is it's the, the conduct of character, the behaviours of individuals can make a massive difference on projects, regardless of their size. You know, I work on a little railway at the moment, but I still have that expectations of subcontractors, um, my colleagues, etc. Even if I was working at Morgan Sindel or at DLR when I was at TFL, your the conviction of your character can make such an impact on the supply chain. And I find if you're honest with the supply chain, I mean, I've had contractors thank me and be stunned for how open and frank and honest I am. And that to me, it's a sad indictment of how bad the electrical installation industry is when contractors go, we've never had a client that's actually said you want it done properly. You want it done right materials, right effort, right energies, right this. And I'm like, wow, mm. how bad have these companies got themselves into a state? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Gary, I spoke over you. Yeah, no, all Go I was going to... Yeah, no, sorry. All, all I was going to kind of say is I've actually found, when I have looked for work, that I've actually had to take the title off my CV. Um, oh, wow, people, wow. people tend not to come near me um, when I've got wow. that title on there so I've ended up trying various different titles like contracts director or just putting project manager or, or, or anything like that um, it tends to if you put all the tasks you do there's a respect there but not for the title you kind of there's a assumptions made that you're kind of overqualified for the for whatever role however well paid at whatever level um, well, that's certainly my experience. Yeah, and also it's probably worth just because one of the things we mentioned earlier on about NEC contracts, um, if anybody's wondering what the NEC contract is, so there's, there's a term called NEC3, NEC4, and it's an engineering and construction contract. It's a framework of contracts, and they have a, a framework um, titled you mentioned NECC, but they have A to F. This is for the listeners now, really. Um, and the difference between them, if I can just blitz quite through them, uh, NECA is a priced contract with an activity schedule. So a program of works or a program of activities with the costs associated. And NECB is a price contract with a bill of quantities. So it's not activities, it's your materials, et cetera, with associated time. Uh, NECC, which is, a, which is one of the biggest ones used, is a target contract with an activity schedule. So this is the cost I think it's going to be. This is the activity schedule I think it will be there. There's options for variations, etc., accelerations and all that various bits. NECD is a target contract with billy quantities. You don't get really Bs and Ds used very much. My personal favorite of all time, the NEC option E is a cost reimbursable contract. <laughs> also known as time and materials. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be honest and say that when I did Shepherd's Bush for Westfield, it was a cost reimbursable contract. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did we spend a hell of a lot of money in a very short, well, 16.2 million in 18 weeks, which wow. is a lot of cash. Um, and the project was 68 million in total to do Shepherd's Bush, demolish and rebuild it in a period of eight months. 
and I literally had 18 weeks to do the M&E fit out. Um, NEC uh, option F is just a management only. So if you bring in a contractor just to manage, for instance, I could turn around to you to Dave and I could say, Dave, I want you to come into my business and develop a new method and means of training or testing or smart, intelligent electrical installations. Mm -hmm. And I want you to oversee all of it. But I want you to just manage it, develop it, etc. I may I may engage you on a management contract in NEC option F. Right. You may turn around and say, well, I'd rather go on option E because it's just my time and whatever materials I use, which for you is lower risk. And these different NECs have different what we call risk profiles with them. So if it's um, uh, a bill of quantities, if you mess that up, your risk profile is going to be quite high. Right. Uh, it all depends on the quantity surveyors, the commercial managers. Gary knows what I'm talking about. These get very deep, very dark, very complex. Um, and that's just one form of contract. There's JCTs. Um, there's ICEs, there's lots of different construction contracts which aren't used in the domestic sector. It's fairly fair to say, but I'm sure, Gary, you're going to cover them more in uh, in, in the future anyway at some point. Yep, hopefully. That's a synced <laughs> answer there. Um, <clears throat> so that was a good introduction, Gary. So um, so you basically started off, um, finished your apprenticeship straight into management. You're on Tideway. One of the things that fascinates me, we have a wonderful man, and we have to mention at this point, Robert Preston, who we love dearly. I think of him when I think of water treatment. That's well, I think of him as yeah. the benchmark for, for waste and water. And you two need to get together and put the world to rights. Um, we have a very dear friend in E5 called Robert Preston, who is just a machine at uh, managing, running, ripping out old waste treatments plant and installing new, supervising it, managing it. He's brilliant. He works in the construction supply chain. But what, what are the challenges? What do you find? Because I work in rail. And I find rail technically for, as you know, Gary, I've, I've shown you some of the complexities and the, the things that keep the grey cells warm. What do you find? What attracted you to uh, water and waste uh, as a, a sector? What interests you? I think it's the process control that I really enjoyed. So it's the getting a sets of instruments that can all read various different things, getting them into a, you know, a PLC um, having a ladder logic, configuring all of that, and actually making everything work so that the plant is as efficient as possible. Um, so obviously there's quite a lot of pumps, there's quite a lot of motors, um, there's always typically variable speed drives in there. Um, it's reading oxygen in, in the poo, essentially, and it's reading airflow, it's um water management um, water treatment as well as you know ensuring the right dosing chemicals go in it, it, it's its own process let alone the electrical stuff you have to do to make it work so um, I, have, I have tried not to swear in this but you've gone ahead and used the poo word so that's an explicit rating on this podcast straight away. <laughs> for those listening plc by the way if, you, if you're not aware it's a programmable logic controller yeah. um it's effectively an industrial computer control system isn't it um yep. Now, I, 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 I can tell you now, I, I can concur with what Gary said, because when I did Cooling the Tube, I was told Cooling the Tube is going to be a route-wide PLC system that uh, has a central point of control and controls the whole Victoria line. And all I, all I thought was, pardon? Well, I've no idea. Um, well, it's, it's um, just it's just it's just like another sector of automation isn't it it's just a series of switches it is a, well that's the beauty and this know. is how i define it and gary you can tell me you're mad 
when I had to go and learn it and then do it and commission it because that's mm. the way you just get learned. You just go and get thrown into the water. Yeah. For me, I sat there with the guys doing the coding and it was we, we were always about cause and effect. The fan, the VSD, the fire alarm panel, the signals, the I.O. schedule. How do we take all of this noise and data and seamlessly integrate it? And we put it into a ladder logic, a series of command and control questions. It's, it's got to be the best way to start when you work with PLCs. You know, you get mm. to a simple ladder logic structure. You can then draw it down um, and then you can try to complicate it later on with different codes, foundation block, things like that, uh, construction block. Because the idea being, obviously, these other languages are some ways more but rapid for the processors for, for the, the sparks PLC. listening for um, the simple layman sparks so you start with ladder logic there's some great material on that um so i mean with you go did you have to go on dedicated plc training or is it something you kind of learned on the job no i ended up learning it on the job basically yeah, the job. yeah it was kind of just go on build the panel and you kind of you end up learning the function of the panel just through wiring it and then right okay it all goes back to the plc make that control it as you as you want to and basically I, it was one day i think it was for a project we were doing at heathrow for foul water pumps just chucked a laptop at me and they were just kind of like make that work we need x y and z out of it um, there, there are some guys making good money with plc programming because there are a lot of companies all around the uk that i work with and all i'll go there i'll train all of the me team all of the maintenance team talk about electrical electrical safety arc flash all this stuff i then talk about plc so they'll go oh no 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 someone else does that yeah, yeah. No. i was going to your plant you've got to maintain it you've got to have continuity how do you no no no. we get someone in he sits with a laptop and he's like 300 pound an hour 400 pound an hour yep you and, know, that, and that he's put all of that he's put all of that programming under a password or under a code or something yeah. i was like well technically the code is you know you should kind of retain that property it's your code it's it's a lot it's there's a lot that. in that so just yeah. on that we we paid on cooling the tube we paid for a guy and he was let's put it us it was a lot more than three four hundred pound an hour <laughs> but it was, yeah. and and he was a genius on the software but what he wasn't was a genius on the plant systems, the connected, what the cause and effect was. Yeah. So for me, I actually started, and this is a true story, I started a cooling the tube on what I knew in my competence, which was the cause and effect. I knew what a VSD did. I knew what a PLC was, but I knew all of the signals and how it all should be physically wired. So then I had to sit with a software guy and tell him, well, if my fire alarm at the station a mile away sends it's a signal, yeah. it needs to close this. And if my local fire alarm, it needs to send. And so he would develop the logic with me sat next to him. And so I sat and watched this computer genius at work. And for me, the simplest way of explaining it to my electricians was you program a piece of software. When that software software runs, it takes the, the inputs and, and sends outputs. Those inputs and outputs go into the, the bigger part of the panel. They go to relays and contactors. Those relays and contactors then generate electrical signals, electrical switching signals, which then cause bigger switches to kick in or send directly to panels the signals to do whatever I'm responding. But it all goes from mechanical movement and electrical movement into software, command and control. And that that was how I, I learned. And I just find the whole, the, the level of intrinsic detail that you can do with PLCs is off. I mean, think about it, the Victoria line on London Underground. There is one PLC running the whole network. One Every PLC station, I think there's about, the 28 29 fire alarm panels yeah. all connected all of it's on one fiber network mm. it's mind-blowing what they can do now i'm assuming that, that probably that fiber network's probably a ring so it's 
yes. maintained at all times. And yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, yeah. London. Well, if, for those who don't know what London Underground, why put one fibre in when you can put at least two in diverse routes that cost millions? And it's got to be a fire-rated cable, armoured cable, and everything else. Yeah, but that's we all you're well for, for you. Yeah, we do the same in the water industry. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Heavy industry. Well, you can't. The resilience. It comes down to a term called resilience, doesn't it? If you put in this infrastructure for public use or public safety, the backbones have to be literally bomb-proof. Got to be. And if something fails, you've got to have a backup. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's the thing. I mean, the, even the tunnel fans on Coolant Tube, mm. they've got DNO intakes and substations just as backup supplies for the evacuation staircases to positively pressurise well, them. That's why a lot of these things so. have their own definitive standards because they have to go beyond the norm. They have to go beyond. Oh, they the yeah. Well, and that's you know the acceptable. They have to go beyond that. And this is why I always say to people: if you do domestic and you want to expand or mm. melt your brain or go commercial industrial, and you will expand your knowledge and perceptions massively. It will push you in a way that you probably don't like, but after a few years, you'll love it. You'll you'll yeah. just go on such. I, I've always said the railways, the from an EMC perspective, is phenomenal education, phenomenal. And reading the standards, that those standards, sector specific standards, is the passing on of an immense amount of knowledge. I think it's I fair think, to say. I think one of the key things that we always did with our apprentices when we had them was start them with relay logic. Just give them a, a, literally one fundamental component learn that inside out grow yeah. to contactors from there and eventually <clears throat> looking at the the drawing on a ladder logic you'll understand that it's the same principle you've mm. pretty much just described the um the training that i had to develop for a company where we looked at developing some of their mechanical guys uh to do some more electrical discipline and i said well if we can't start with relay logic self-latching a single relay if you can't do that don't go to any plcs don't go into any other automation you can't understand simple ways electricity obviously uses the electromagnetic fields to actually close switches. There's no point moving forward. So you've got mm. to start there. So that's a great thing. Are there are there any specific standards in your industry that, that you know specific to your industry that, you, that adjust the way that electricians would work? Yeah. So nationally, for all water treatment, you have WIMES, which is the Water Industry Mechanical and Electrical Specification. Um, so that's a national standard. Although you still like the regs have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, then, do you have to pay then, for them? Yeah, of course you do. Oh, that's <laughs> insane. Why do you have to pay for them? Um, because people want money. Um, <laughs> do you know what? That's a stupid... Well, I can't really say it on this podcast, but there are other industry bodies that used to make their standards free, and now they charge people, and they charge their supply chain, and the supply chain then has to bill them back with a markup for mm. their own standards, to comply with their own standards, which were once free. It makes no sense. Yeah. So then, like, yeah, no, that's all right. So like I kind of said before, you have then have um, like almost specific based on the supplier. So like in this instance, Thames Water, they have a collection called the F catalog um, and like F15 being LV specific. You then have control panel specific, comm specific um, and everything like they do like that. Um it obviously goes probably a bit more into detail associated with the um, the ENA G5 slash 4 dash 1 stuff like surrounding earthing. So that's UKPN um, guidelines. 
and and such like that because obviously yeah. with Energy all networks the... association mm. published yeah. a whole load of if it, that's a good point actually there's lots and lots of information um if anybody's interested so anyone who does pv listening to this will know mm. about certain standards for exporting into the grid and connection into the grid and maximum capacity and all the rest of it but there's lots of quirky little standards on the energy networks association website they're the guys who are driving the changes from dno to dso which is a term we realized a few years ago but they also have limits on what you can export into their grid like 25 volts for instance you're not allowed to export anything more than 25 volts onto the earthy yeah how many people knew that yeah. it's, it's in one of their obscure little standards um i actually know some of the guys at ena and i nearly work there actually but um so how would you say then, so WIMES and the F catalogue, are they like, because on railway, the RSSB standards are almost like, even though they're not, they're almost like your electricity at work regs type thing. You will, you shall, you must, you will. They're like group standards. They're mandatory under any contract. Um, but then you have the network rail standards, which are like kind of like the guidance notes. If I always equate stuff to the regs and the guidance notes in that hierarchy of understanding so are wimes like your electricity at work regs even though they're not or are they your your wiring regs and your f catalog is like your guidance notes how do you yeah so so basically i I would always assume kind of almost like contract hierarchy wimes would be the bottom with probably said so british standard would be the bottom yeah then wimes then you go into your F catalog because, and you kind of build up from there. Yeah, as you're going up that category, you're getting to a much closer requirement of your client. Because if the yes. F catalog is Thames's catalog, that is the client, that is the, you know, that is going to a company, client you must specific. comply with the client specific yeah, requirements. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, they're yeah, all... um, I've, I've worked with a number of organizations that they have a huge library and they're all quite holistically gathered with all different areas. But you always need to make sure you find anything that's referenced to your area of work. So you say like F15 is LV. Yes. But I mean, you could do any work and probably have to apply with a number of others. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, assessing the contradictions mm-hmm. that, that, that they have <laughs> and just working up generally probably to what the contract says that should come top. That can definitely be a challenge when you get to client specifics is you can start to disagree or you can start to realize the aged, the datedness of some of the, uh, some of the, are uh, you possibly suggesting that some client documents can be absolutely ancient and cut and pasted by Um, complete nincompoops? I'm not saying that you're saying that I am saying that. Listen, (laughs) I have seen some standards that you can literally read and go. That was last amended in 1982. Yeah, it's it's so irrelevant and so bad. I mean, anyone who reads anything in our industry, the minute they read a manufacturing instruction, they see refer to IE wiring regulations. IEE Nobody's still. touched it in donkeys. Right. Saw that last week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the late that that tell you. But that, what that does do is it tells me about the quality management systems of the manufacturers. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's 2007 they changed their name for crying out loud. It's been enough years now, 13 yeah. years. They've not done a QMS audit to say we need to update our references and maybe see if there's any changes in a obligation from those regulations. It's a bit embarrassing. It just shows you how they're not considering um, that, to be honest with you. But mm-hmm. I, I work to various framework of standards. And, and in, in my case, I've always said, Dave, you know this. Um, Gary, you know this as well from other podcasts. Um the wine regs is the minimum. This is why we always say you should work from them, not to yeah. them. Um, I, I always say to my sparks, if you're arguing over regulation, there's a bigger problem in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I look at 7671 straight away from just an earthing 
context. Um, uh, sitting above, so 7671 is, is the absolute bottom of the pile. I'd actually put 7430, which is the code of practice for earthing and lightning protection above that. Um, but above that, I've then got 50122 BSEN. Mm. Uh, above that, I've then got the network rail standard, NR, uh, EP, ELP um, 21085, which is the earthing and bonding, which deals with LV and HV interfaces. Then I go electricity at work regs. I do the same when I do the training. Whenever I cover the training, I go to scope. I go, right, 7671, it's a foundation. You stand on the foundation, but everything else is on top of that foundation. I, th I think you know everything is built on top of that. I think it's very important for anyone who does decide to change sector. Um, my bit of advice I've always given people, and I think I've said it in these podcasts, is when you change sector, the first, or employer actually, understand the governance of the employer. So when I say governance, what are their rules and working Mm. policies etc because when you work for an employer you have to fit within the structure and the behaviors they want their, you to fit. their rules procedures your rules procedures etc so their yeah. governance um how they manage their business you need to fit into that but yeah. also the hierarchy of how the contracts work and also the the legislative duty-bound obligations because i have when in my earlier career i used to go yeah but the wine regulations and then someone waived a document and it was called departures from bs 7671 and i was like Ah, they've written a standard that actually supersedes 7671. Bugger, I'll shut up. Yeah. Um, mm. So it, it does happen, and it's worthwhile not getting caught. So, again, but the good thing is, is you're not sat within the context of one standard arguing. You're realising there's a bigger picture out there, and you then start to understand how other standards can sometimes contradict standards or feed into other standards. So it's never boring. I think working it's 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 funny I mean, my line of work is where i get involved I, I get involved with these clients as a consultant creating these standards uh most recently i've been doing one with a company it's a u.s company it's actually worldwide they're very busy right now because they make um they make equipment that does you know um tests against diseases and medical equipment uh wow. and, and they brought they, they brought they, they manufacture their equipment in the states and they sell it around the world and they've got an emea sector and the emea sector had to have some rules procedure the U.S. said, oh, you got to have an LV rules procedure because when these guys, the guys doing the work, they're pharmacists, they're chemists, and they train chemists to go to client sites to actually then maintain the equipment. So they're working with electrics in live conditions, but they're actually not electrically trained at all, mm. you know. And then obviously because it's because of an American company, they created a European standard when the Americans had to tick it off. They said, oh, where's your arc flash information? In Europe, we don't actually approach arc flash like a direct approach so you know i had to get involved in trying to marry up and align that and it was it took a while a bit of backwards and forwards but they they, they got to a point where You've it was done acceptable. a lot of research dave on arc flash i love i love the little labels yeah. that are now putting on equipment telling people what arc flash risks are there i think that's quite that's the requirement of nfpa 70e in the us it's like it's a standard it's a bit like the electricity at work hsr 25 over here all of the plant and process equipment in the states has to have a label on it that says the level of incident energy in calories per centimeter square so the operator if it goes up to that plant then knows immediately what level of ppe category to select wow in the in europe we don't have that because the process in europe is elimination that's right yeah. eliminate reduce isolate eliminate. Control. Yeah, but yeah. we know that there are electrical workers who will go well electricity work regulation 14 and i'm going to have to work live it's maintenance thermal Absolutely, energy. yeah it's, it's you know all these things so we'll remove the panel but do we know the level of incident energy if there's a short circuit or an arc flash incident we don't because we don't actually approach it to quantify it anyway i've gone off on a tangent but yeah that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty what good happens. tangent dave 
That's what happens when you start getting involved in these standards. You have to go across a larger spectrum to see the requirements of specific clients, which countries they work in, and actually consolidate the requirements to individual countries and individual sectors. And then you've got to get the local consolidations, the local authorities, the local governance as well. And you've got to get them to agree. It could take yeah. a while. It's, yeah. a, it's, a long, it's a long journey, but yeah. Um, yeah, so quite... you, what you've done for me is you've just given me a bit of CPD because I'm gonna I'm gonna go and see if I can get these do do documents. Fairness. Yeah, I'm... I can get, I'm gonna read them. Yeah, I know, Dave. Me and Dave are common brothers <laughs> in sadness in that yeah. respect. We'll we'll it's we'll great. be we'll be hunting uh, them out to read them. I'll um, help you out on that one. Cool. Thank you, um, much. Yeah. Gary. Um, next question. Um, industry in general. So you've been very kindly. You've said you've listened to our podcast, and we thank you very much for that. Um, and um, what would you know some of the things we debate, training and the industry, the challenge. I, I use the word challenges uh, rather than the state of the industry because everything is a challenge. If you say state, it's very negative and defeatist. Yeah, and challenges um, suggest that we can seek to improve, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, so what do you see from your experience? And that's what I love about having different people on here. Um, what do you see some of the challenges in our industry are going forward? Um, we probably... You might have done it at length, but I would say the QS model um, Ooh, with, okay. within the within the companies that I've operated in, and I've been guilty of it myself in the past. Um, you, you abuse the QS model. Um, you know, you have probably three people to thirty, um, and it's just not an effective way to actually manage your your installations. Can I just say that when I was a QS 3DF Energy, nobody abused me. <laughs> I did the abusing, okay? Um, but in, uh, I will admit that um, one of me to about 1,100 electricians, even though I literally was on site every night at different railway stations, it was physically impossible. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I think if it's done right, I think it can be an effective model, but I think it's been abused for many years and become the abuse has become the default setting. Yeah, there definitely should be a ratio, I think, um, to the number of electricians allowed on a company to a, a QS. Um, well, that was that was that was actually requested or discussed to the current or the uh, the current at the time uh, chief exec of one of the CPS, and the answer they gave was the problem is if we say X amount of numbers, there are circumstances where it's too many, there are circumstances where it's too few. Yeah, they they tried to, to they, company money. They, yeah, yeah, they didn't want to give a specific number, and that's why we've still not got it's a solution poor, to this problem. It's very poor form. I mean, with yeah. my current incumbent contractor, um, one of my first questions when they started with me was, um, "Who is my QS for my mm. contract?" And they had one for the company, and I was like, "That's great, you've got one for the company. You're having one for my contract, because if you don't, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to take it you're in breach." of your obligations as an IC registered contractor, because I want my qualified supervisor to be supervising. Supervising, yeah. And if he is not, then I will not accept you as an IC registered contractor, and we will be then having words. I think I think a lot of the the, the blame will be to sit with the NIC in, in, or whoever, whichever CPS, assessors, um, because obviously they're making these judgment calls on the companies that they're visiting. Um, and they're, they're obviously not flagging it for improvement. Um, I don't think I don't know whether they're allowed to. And I mean, it's interesting because we are working on trying to get an NIC area engineer onto this podcast. Mm. Um, so we, we have made a formal request if we could kindly have an area engineer who can maybe tell uh, yeah. his life, not a 
you know, just a genuine, honest approach, because I know a couple of NIC air engineers and every time I've spoken to them, they've been positive, upbeat, technically very good. Um, I think if you went back to the old inspector model, um, you may you could argue that it'd be better. But I think it's the balance between a good rapport with your contractor and then enforcement on the contractor. Mm, the contractor think... will always see an enforcement as a tax on them. Yeah. Mm. No, I and also I think they I think the problem was because we had such a boom in the markets when obviously we introduced the domestic sector and all this stuff. Um and I think they had to just find a huge amount of assessors. And this is like I always try to question, and I did a little article on this about the competence of the assessors, not trying in any way to question the competence of an assessor, but how do the so competent person schemes actually, you know assure the quality because as as in a training industry because i'm a i'm a i'm a trained assessor in the training industry and paul's an assessor with the iet we have specific training routes and we have to verify fairness we have to verify the effectiveness of holistic assessment we have to make sure we verify the accuracy the integrity um and all of that goes into that and if what, we've, what i've never really seen from the cps is just really and um, just a declaration of how they verify this for us that we know the assessors are given enough support by the cps because i know from my experience i had a great assessor once his name was jim logan and if you ever get if you get a good guy you'll remember his name um and he was he was not tough but he was clever and he supported and he also inspired you to actually learn a few things but then i had a couple more and it was basically a guy who was really just turning up for attendance and ticking off and cross-referencing and i know you know and i appreciate they had a huge increase in demand a huge increase of the requirement for assessors and basically i believe at one specific time if a company had a nationwide coverage they were basically requested or used for assessors because they had nationwide coverage i know there was a car there's a company from there's a guy who came to me and i asked him how did you get this he said oh we were just asked because we're a nationwide company um so the quality in, in the elect in the training industry we have a term called quality assurance external quality assurance internal quality assurance and this is something that i've always wanted to see some more transparency from from the cps just to give us some confidence that they are taking some of that you know they are looking to improve those measures or improve that work because if they don't we're always going to question the effect and you know the way the assessment is performed yeah no i'd agree i think it's probably it's very difficult for them to come into a specific industry like the water industry yeah. and we end up essentially explaining it to them. Um, but that's as, again, that assessor is not suitable. No, exactly. That's exactly Fund it, fundamentally, yeah. that assessor is not suitable. Like, yeah. like, like if I was to do a condition report in your sector, I should have five years or more experience in that sector to do a condition okay. report. So of the system. So an assessor should have the same. Plain devil's advocate, chap. So I was lucky I had Bob Kemp. Bob Kemp did pretty much all the rail companies for the NICEIC. Why? Because he had years of experience. He obviously knew the rail sector very well, and he was very familiar with railway setup and configuration. However, when I was being inspected, I remember the stuff he was asking me was basically intense scrutiny on my fundamental principles, my methods of te testing and inspection and testing, my method of safe isolation and my method of uh, correct selection and erection. There was nothing really rail sector specific other than me telling him the safe working rules and the levels of things I could isolate and do. But he knew because of the rail industry, I would have to find somewhere I could do isolations testing without doing operational disruption. That 
it's not hard to teach an area engineer that. And I think... Question, I, I, question is, Paul, what is the objective of the NIC assessment? Is it to verify that you work to be a 7671 or EAWR? I think it's a mixture of both nowadays, isn't it? Well, if it's EAWR, I haven't it must had, be... I haven't must... had an inspection in, in donkey's years, mate. I haven't been a QS yeah. in... Because if we look at the competence term in the AWR, we're looking at the, the words relevant to the nature of the work, surely. Yes. Yes. And you when know. I was inspected, I, you could argue that the NIC inspector was making sure I was competent mm. to the relevant nature of the work. But more importantly, he, he was making sure that I was competent so that when it came to inspecting other people's work and signing off on the certificates that I had, mm. I always looked at it as he wanted to see the integrity in me to be able to say no. I'm not signing that off. And and that's where I saw the NIC QS role as an app or qualifying manager, as it was, um, as a absolute position of absolute technical authority, pride, passion. Um, I know they changed it from qualifying manager to supervisor because lots of managers went and did the courses. Yeah. And they sat in the offices and they wanted that gone. I was lucky. Um, I, I was a qualified supervisor. It was a brand new term at the time. I was proud as punch. Proud as I was. Punch. Yeah, I was. Um... Well, we know they're looking to obviously improve on some things. We know that they've obviously got a bit of new leadership inside, and we're mm -hmm. just going to make sure that they, you know, that we don't obstruct or get in the way of any progress that they want to make. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, okay, Gary, you've highlighted a good one on the QS model. Is there anything else um, before we wind this down that um, you think is a challenge for the industry? It might not be electrically specific but probably the construction industry as a whole probably relates back relates back to payment again but it's the the amount of large construction companies getting into trouble on on on, on large yeah. <laughs> on large projects obviously carillion is a uh, the perfect example current example yeah Mate, pick a name this is the trouble uh, how many construction companies go bankrupt get bought out by others i i find it embarrassing where i remember when i worked for morgan est I, well i was employed by a company called gleason mcl who were uh, maybe construction got bought out by gleason they then became gleason mcl they then became morgan est part of morgan sindel group then they got rid of Morgan Est and became Morgan Sindel, which they still are now. And you, you, when you work in Tier 1, is it fair to say that you do see quite a lot of change? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in probably three to five years, I've seen 10 to 15 companies either change or go under. Funny uh, yeah. thing is, I've gone from one to the other, and it seems that they're a different brand, a different image, a different identity, but they all make the same mistakes. Yep, they do. They do. Um, yeah, and it's all which the is same bizarre. Style. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's probably these directors we mentioned earlier on, just going from the next one to the next one. To the well, next remember one. there is the theorem of um, the higher you promote someone, the the, the more you promote incompetence. So for what instance, is that? that's Peter something. Peter, can't remember. But there's there's a, there's a theory that basically, if you promote a, a director of some form, um, that let's put it like this: if I was made the managing director of a major tier one contractor, I would be the first person to say I am incompetent at the role. However, this is where you then push your own boundaries, your own limitations, mm. and you you try to mould your behaviours. One thing I've learned about my time as a client is when you're at a director level, because I've sat and worked under many good directors and a few bad ones, that yeah. when you're leading a business, you are leading in your behaviours and your attitude. So if you've got a head of safety who is a bit of a wet blanket, 
there is a piss poor safety culture. If you had a, have a head of safety who's on the board and very passionate, you've got a robust safety culture. Yeah. Um, and, and a good managing director is one who will listen to all around him, take salient advice, and more importantly, is a people person. The trouble is, is they're not there long enough for the for the shop floor people to have any faith in them because they're constantly changing high vis or uniforms or logos or badges. And that is the let's be honest about it. It's the it's the elephant in the room that the construction industry doesn't want to talk about. It is. It is because a lot of people just want to protect their own agendas. Yeah, it's yep. called the Peter Principle. I've just Googled it. It's an observation right. that the tendency in most organizational hierarchies, such as a corporation, it's for every employee to rise in the hierarchy through promotion until they reach a level of respective incompetence. Mm. Incredible, isn't it, when you think yeah. of it like that? Yeah. I never used to think of it like that, but it makes sense. And I have actually seen people promoted from site who were absolutely useless. And I have actually gone to the managers and said, with the greatest respect, I really want to understand how that person got promoted because mm -hmm. um, it's insulting to the other people on his grade because he was bad. I mean, he nearly killed someone. And, and I was told he has been promoted to get him off of site before he kills someone. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. wow, I've never thought of it in that context. Mm. Oh, my God. And it's true. That's what they did. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the construction industry in general, I'm sure there's going to be lots and lots of podcasts to talk about various intricacies in that. Um, I awesome. think if that's all right, chaps, we are going to kind of wind this down here. Yeah, um, I, th I think so. I mean, well, I was going to ask Gary about, which I think we'll save for another one, because he said when he took a little holiday from his sector, he went into house bashing for a while. Okay. I think we can have a bit of fun and talk about that on another podcast another well, time. On that bombshell, I think it's time to tell everybody the deep and dark secret that some people may not know about. So, Mr. Gary Alder, you have um if it's fair to say because the one thing i've noticed about this tantalizing conversation is the audio quality is absolutely fantastic do you perhaps have a podcasting microphone sat in front of you i do so is it fair to say that we can introduce um to everybody listening to one thank everybody for listening first of all but we strongly commend and we hope you will take some time after you hear this to um search through your podcast provider and find a new podcast which is called Hit the Lights. Gary, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're planning to do with that podcast? Yeah, so obviously experience and experiences of everyone um, at all levels, I think are key to learning for everyone to kind of move forward in the industry and just listening and, you know, to podcasts such as yourselves can help someone if they're in a difficult bind um or whatever the situation whether it's technical whether it's uh, emotional even potentially um i think just discussing those things openly can definitely help the industry progress and one of the things i wanted to do was just start being a bit more open and trying to be inclusive to as many people as i can by just sharing stories and hopefully if a few if one person listens and finds a benefit that's fantastic Great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, for one, um, fully, fully support. And I hope at some point, Gary, you might uh, uh, grace us with attendance in your, or on your podcast. Sorry, um, because I think I can speak for all of us that um, if you ever ask, we shall come a running and share some uh, humorous stories, some serious stories and stuff. But it's also fair to say that I think because of your commercial and industrial background, 
um, there's definitely going to be some more commercial industrial slant to your podcast as well. Yeah, there will be. Yeah, I've got a few industrial guys already lined up to hopefully have a have a chat. Brilliant, and I love that because hearing people's passion and stories and knowledge, it just feeds the imagination. It it it's like a recharge. Honestly, I I, I love I love all this stuff. Um, okay, well, on that amazing amazing announcements, um, David Watts, thank you very much, as always, brother. No worries, brother. guys. Good talking to you, Gary. Um, Gary, you're a legend, and for all those listening. It's, the podcast is called Hit the Lights. Hit the Lights. Um, is yep. it fair to say, Gary, it will be on all major podcast providers? It will be. I've just uploaded a trailer. I'm hoping I should get approval from the likes of Apple within one to two weeks. Yes. Perfect. So um, stay tuned for it on Anchor, Podcast, Spotify, Podbean, all the major ones. It, it takes a bit of time, doesn't it? We've learned that from ours. It took us probably about four to six weeks to get it on seven or eight providers. And we also have ours on YouTube as well um, as an audio or video file. Um, this will be an audio one. <clears throat> so uh, I'll need a picture of you so I can Simpsonize you, Gary. Yep. You're going to join our Simpsons Hall of Fame now. Um, and yeah, hit the lights. Uh, brand done. new podcast cool. coming soon, ladies and gents, um, with your very own Gary Alder and all of his um, friends and industry peers and colleagues. So please check that out. It should be a a great addition to the um, portfolio of knowledge in engineering uh, and our industry. The more, the better. Indeed. Right. So um, it leaves me again once. Thank thank you very much, gents. And I'm going to end this podcast with the usual. Cheers. Take care of yourself. Bye 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 bye. Each other. Bye bye.